Most popular non-biblical Christmas story of all time, what would you say? I didn't say your favorite, the most popular, and it's not Die Hard. <laughs> By the way, you Die Hard, Die Hard fans, do not Google Die Hard plus Ambulance while you're here. Do that later and bring up some trivia. A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens was an instant classic. Its full title, A Christmas Carol in Prose, Being a Ghost Story of Christmas. Published on December 19, 1843, the first edition sold out by Christmas Eve. By the end of the year, 13 editions had been released. In 1849, Dickens began public readings of the story, which proved so successful, he undertook 127 further performances until 1870 when he died. A Christmas Carol has never been out of print. It's been translated into lots of languages. The story has been adapted umpteen times for film, stage, opera, and just about every other media, print and visual. There have been at least 23 motion picture adaptations, 62 theater adaptations, four operas, 29 television adaptations with new ones every year, and I think that number's low, and five graphic novels. Then there are the radio performances, recordings, and straight to DVDs, and it's almost impossible, what well, is impossible to count what are classified as derivative works where the storyline or a character are utilized. For all its popularity, you almost never hear anything about what inspired Dickens. There are good reasons to believe that Dickens had a Bible story in mind, not one that most people would in any way think of as representative or even appropriate for Christmas. It's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety so you can hang on to the context. This is Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. You are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fix so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, although one rise from the dead. Try reading that this, uh, before gifts on Christmas morning to your <laughs> children. I have a Christmas story for you. Is it Frosty the snowman? No, quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. 
That's going to certainly set a mood. It's more reminiscent of the nightmare before Christmas. But this was Dickens' inspiration. First of all, there is a rich man, Ebenezer Scrooge, who sees his death. And there's a poor man, Tiny Tim, who is going to die. Second, it's made clear that like the rich man, Scrooge, beyond death, is headed for torment in the afterlife. Third, around the time A Christmas Carol was published, Dickens wrote a short biography of Jesus for his children. He titled it, The Life of Our Lord. The parable of Lazarus and the rich man was one of only eight stories that Dickens chose to include in that volume. Uh, not what I would have guessed. Fourth, a passage in a book titled The Oxford Illustrated Dickens mentions the rich man and Lazarus in a sentence together with Scrooge. And fifth, and most significantly, I think, the Sunday after Dickens was buried in Westminster Abbey, Dean Arthur Penryn Stanley preached on exactly this parable, and he spoke of Dickens as the parabler of his age. Stanley said that, and I quote, by Dickens that veil was rent asunder which parts the various classes of society. Through his genius, the rich man was made to see and feel the presence of Lazarus at his gate. And so it's pretty clear that Dickens had this in mind. Now, the story of the rich man and Lazarus is often called a parable. It isn't. It doesn't follow the rules of a parable. For one, in a parable, there are people or things that represent other people and things. The parable of the sower, for example, the seed represents the word of God and the soil, the various conditions of the human heart. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, everything is itself. There are no representations. For another thing, parables do not name their characters. If this was a parable, it was the only one Jesus told that used a proper name. Lazarus was a real person, and the description of him was his true daily life. You may, if you've been around churches a long time, especially traditional churches, you may have heard the rich man referred to as Dives, D-I-V-E-S, as if that was his name. Dives means wealthy. The name was given to him by translators and commentators to further emphasize to readers that this is not a parable. It certainly wasn't his real name, but they, rather than just call him the rich man, they give him kind of a moniker so that you know that this is a true story. Jesus was talking with men from a sect of the Jewish religion known as the Pharisees. They considered themselves right with God because of their meticulous adherence to the written laws of God. Their wealth was to them an evidence that God was pleased with their devotion. We still have vestiges of this today. There are many people, even in the Christian community, who feel like if God is blessing, in a sense, with material things, then you must be really right with God, as opposed to the rest of us uh, who attend Calvary Chapel. But... <laughs> Their wealth was evidence that God was pleased with their devotion. In one place, we're told these guys were so meticulous about giving God 10% of their wealth, they gave 10% of their spices to God. Here's what Jesus said. This is from Matthew. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So you see where Jesus was coming from for all their claim to scrupulously keep the Old Testament law of God. They were not right with God. They were weighing out their basil, as it were, while Lazarus was begging outside the gate. 
Now, Lazarus was beyond poverty. He had to be carried to the rich man's gate to beg. He was covered in foul sores from head to toe. The household dogs had it better than him. They at least did get table scraps, and they got a little seasoning with it, I might add. What do you mean, Pastor Gene? <laughs> Are you referencing the fact that they licked his sores? Are you making fun of that? Yes, I am, but that's obviously not funny, so I'm not going to bring it up. <laughs> it was unthinkable to a law-keeping Pharisee that such a person could be right with God. His destitute condition was to them a sign of God's displeasure. Lazarus was getting what he deserved. Lazarus wasn't taken to a place of rest and refreshment because he deserved it. He was taken there because in spite of his miserable condition in life, he believed God. How can I say that? I can say that because he was greeted by Abraham, and the place was referred to in this story as Abraham's bosom. We're told in the Old Testament that Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Not by works of righteousness that he had done, but by faith was he justified by God to be eventually taken to his rest. All those taken to Hades to wait with Abraham must have like faith. They are there by faith, not by works. And so by virtue of the fact that this is called Abraham's bosom, and we know a lot about Abraham, both Old Testament and New, and we know how he was saved, how it was by faith and justified, not by his works, but by grace through faith, uh, all those who we find in that part of Hades uh, are like believers. And so uh, Lazarus was a believer. Hades is described as a temporary abode for a person's spirit, when it leaves the physical body at death. But not everyone is in the same part of Hades after death. Let me reread a couple of these verses. Verse 24 said, Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. You know, the Bible is really informative regarding the afterlife. Obviously, the Bible tells us all that we need to know for life and godliness. It's, it, it contains history, but it's not really a history book. Uh, you know, it, it contains scientific discoveries, but it's not really a science book. Uh, it, nothing ever contradicts it, but it's a story of redemption from uh, the Garden of Eden forward until the, the end of the book of the Revelation. And it tells us a lot about the afterlife. The moment you die, your spirit leaves your body. From the creation of the world until the coming of Jesus Christ, the spirits of all deceased went to Hades. One part is a place of bliss and comfort called Abraham's bosom. It was called paradise by Jesus when he promised one of the thieves crucified next to him, today you will be in paradise. The other part is a waiting room of unrelenting conscious torment. And I don't want to get off on a tangent, but uh, if you're wondering you know, about what the spirit is, it obviously has some substance and some shape and because uh, Lazarus, or not Lazarus, rather the rich man when he's in Hades and Lazarus, 
They don't have their resurrection bodies. They haven't been raised from the dead. This is not their final resting place where they will need resurrection bodies. And yet uh, his spirit was able to be comforted and the rich man's spirit was able to be tormented. It's a very interesting look into the afterlife. The resurrection of Jesus Christ three days after his death on the cross changed the population of Hades. He's described in the book of Ephesians as having descended there and evacuated those in paradise, taking them with him to heaven. We know that the Lord ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God. He's awaiting his return to the earth to first resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture living believers, and then his second coming after the great tribulation. And so when he, at some point during his uh, three-day sojourn, uh, he led captivity captive, the Bible says. He brought those souls and those spirits that were in Hades in the Abraham's bosom to heaven, and they await their resurrection from there. Subsequently, when a believer dies, he or she is said to be immediately absent from their body and present with the Lord, not in Hades, but in heaven. And so today, uh, with Jesus in heaven and, and uh, Hades uh, you know, having a vacancy on that side, uh, if you die as a believer, you're absent from your body and immediately present with the Lord. And what a great joy that is uh, to share uh, at funerals and, and memorial services and celebrations of life uh, that we know exactly where our loved one is uh, and, and all that. And so Jesus left behind in Hades all those who were not right with God by faith. They are waiting there and will wait there until the final judgment. If you're not a believer, death abruptly ends your opportunities to have faith in Jesus and to be saved. It is appointed unto men once to die, the Bible says, and after this comes judgment. There's no second chance in the afterlife. Uh, if there's one thing I wish was different about the Bible, just on a personal level, is that there would be a second chance to get saved after you die or that it would be universal salvation. The Bible teaches neither of those, and if you think about it, neither of them could possibly be true, or God would be a liar, and his holiness would be assailed. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, judgment. And for those who have never made a testimony of Christ, uh, who've never said that they were born again, uh, we leave that in the hands of God. There's others who are absolutely opposed to God. They let you know. Don't pray for me. Don't talk to me about God or Jesus. I don't want to know anything about that. Very sad, but we can be confident that at the moment of death, we will be absent from the body and present with the Lord. The rich man, you want to call him dives, he's still in Hades awaiting his resurrection and the judgment of the great white throne. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Among the many things we can glean from this is that the rich man finally understood that religion could not save anyone. It could not make a person right with God. He had lived his whole life thinking that he was right with God because of his, in his mind, meticulous keeping of the law. And uh, let's apply that to his brothers as well. Let's say that they did the same. And now he knows that that's not going to get them into the right compartment of Hades. They need to understand that uh, salvation is by believing in God, not on behaving for God. Religion can't make a person right with God. And he wanted his brothers to know that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. 
Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. This is interesting, but I thought about it for a while. And if you read the Old Testament, it is abundantly clear that works cannot save you. Uh, I know a lot of times, even sometimes young Christians think, oh, in the Old Testament, you kept the law and that saved you. And now that doesn't happen anymore. No one kept the law perfectly. Uh, No one can or could other than Jesus Christ. And so it wasn't a matter of keeping the law. It was always a matter of faith. And and that's why Paul spends so much time in the book of Romans in the New Testament talking about Father Abraham. It wasn't by works. It was by faith. He was justified by faith and uh, having nothing to, to do with deserving it or earning it or working for it. There was no religion involved. He believed and that was it. The rich man wanted Lazarus to preach, but he had already been a sermon. He had been a living sermon in his suffering. Here's how. The law that these Pharisees claim to obey talks plenty about helping the poor and the needy. Earlier, we quoted Jesus saying that they, quote, neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The rich man had left mercy undone, at least towards Lazarus, while he weighed out his spices to tithe them a fellow Israelite lay begging just yards away. It's amazing how religion can cloud your mind. You would think just on a logical level, just on a personal level, just on a very human level, that while you're weighing out your spices on your digital scale, unless it's coffee, but anyway. uh, (laughs) and, And just a few yards maybe away is this destitute beggar and your dogs are licking his sores. And you think, you think somebody would do something just, uh, you know, as a human being. But instead, their religion had brought them to the point where they didn't have to do anything because obviously God had put the man in that condition. It was his fault. I'm wealthy. God's blessing me. Uh, but obviously he had a surprise coming. The rich man had left mercy undone. The very presence of Lazarus and his treatment at their hands condemned them as lawbreakers. It revealed them as self-righteous, void of God's righteousness. Lazarus was thus called to a very hard ministry. That's why I think it was a ministry. Uh, Do you ever think of him that way? Do you ever think of Lazarus as a minister of the gospel? Think of this, though. The rich man, I'm sure he had guests all the time, said he fared sumptuously every day. And... I don't know, I've known two or three rich people in my lives. Um, a lot of them like to show off. They, they want to show off what they have, whether it's, you know, this or that or the other thing. And so I'm sure that he had a lot of house parties. Let's go over to this Pharisee's house and dine sumptuously with him. Other Pharisees and scribes and visitors who would come and dine with him to be confronted with Lazarus as a silent sermon. They probably had to walk right by him. You know, beggars, they're not stupid. They, they're not off in the woods somewhere hoping somebody will come by. They're, they're right where the foot traffic is. And so with these open courtyard homes, uh, he was somewhere in the vicinity of the dinner table in the open courtyard where everyone could see him, but also everyone had to walk by him. And everybody certainly would have had a thought about him. 
If he was a sermon, what was his text? You can choose any number of Old Testament texts, but here's one, Leviticus 25, 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. That sounds pretty plain, doesn't it? You don't have to be a believer to understand those words. He's not being judged by God, or perhaps even if he is, you're still supposed to take care of him. Treat him with hospitality like you would a sojourner or a stranger. Instead, they just ignored Lazarus. Probably went beyond that. I think there were people who were sarcastic before me. Sure, they made fun of Lazarus and the dogs licking his sores. I'm going to get some mileage out of that, yeah. But anyway, (laughs) in life, Lazarus was carried. In death, he was carried again, but this time by angels. Are all believers carried? No, I don't think so. But I do think Lazarus was carried after his death to remind us that after a believer dies, every pain and suffering, every sorrow and trouble is immediately left behind. His being carried in life was overshadowed by his being carried in death to Hades. In other words, it's just the symbolism. Think about it for a minute. Carried every day for how many years to his begging spot? to beg and be mistreated by human beings and dogs. And then all of a sudden, angels are carrying him to heaven, and he thinks, wow, that's a turnaround, isn't it? Uh, It was all for good. Lazarus would no longer need to be carried, but he was carried one last time as a kind of representation of a life well-lived. It's not unlike what Bob Cratchit says, quoting his invalid son, Tiny Tim, He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. So think of all of this as street theater. In the Old Testament, God frequently instructed his prophets to act out a scenario in public. Guys like uh, Ezekiel, he's my favorite. He does all kinds of crazy things. He makes a model of Jerusalem being sieged, like, like, a, like kids play with army toys, you know, the little army men, pew, 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 pew. oh, catapult. We used to set up our army men and shoot them with rubber bands, last man standing kind of a thing. But Ezekiel, he's a grown man. He's the prophet of God. He's playing army games with, the, with Jerusalem because he was representing how that the city would be besieged. One time he had to cut a hole through his wall uh, so that he could get a message across. Isaiah had to walk around either naked or in his underwear. Of course, commentators want to say, well, it says naked, but he was in his underwear. I don't know. Tell you what you don't want to be as a prophet in the Old Testament. (laughs) Man, those guys had it rough. Jeremiah acted out many things. He wore a sash for a while, and then he took it, and he buried it in the uh, Euphrates River. And then after a season, he went back and got it. And it was, as you might imagine, all tattered and torn and wiped out. He was representing how the Jews were going to be taken to Babylon to captivity and and all. And so these guys acted these out. So I believe Lazarus, I don't think he knew it, didn't realize it, but he was street theater. He was a street theater gospel preacher to lost Pharisees. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So the rich man reasoned that if Lazarus returned from the dead, his brothers would believe. In what classic Christmas tale does a man return from the grave to warn his partner? 
Well, that would be Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. A lot of people demand a sign from God. Seems like it would be effective. It's not. Just a short time after telling this story, Jesus did raise a man from the dead whose name happened to be Lazarus. Not the same Lazarus, but his friend Lazarus. What was the result? The Pharisees and the other religious leaders got together and began to plot to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. And so he did this amazing miracle. Lazarus, who'd been dead for, I think, four days. His sister even said, Lord, if we roll the stone away, it's going to smell. He stinks by now. Jesus rose him from the dead. He came hopping out of the tomb in his grave clothes. And the Pharisees said, hallelujah, praise the Lord. This is the Messiah. No, they said, we got to get rid of this guy right now. He's getting too popular. He's too powerful. And kill the other guy too while you're at it. Ebenezer Scrooge sees Tiny Tim's death. He sees his own death and destiny. It stuns him into action. His reformation reminds you of the Grinch's heart growing three sizes larger. But here, sadly, is where Dickens falls terrifically short. Let me read to you from the end of his Christmas ghost story. To Tiny Tim, who did not die, Scrooge was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city town or borough in the good old world. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. By the way, this total abstinence principle has nothing to do with alcohol or the avoidance of vices. It is abstinence from being bitter, mean-spirited, angry, dour, greedy, grasping, self-centered, and unforgiving. And so we would call it moral self-improvement. And so as he ended A Christmas Carol, Dickens kept using the word good. Uh, Obviously, when a writer as prolific and uh, intelligent as Dickens uses a word one, two, three, four, five, six times in the last couple of paragraphs, you pay attention. And so his idea was that we would be good, that we would do good works, that we would improve ourselves and live by the total abstinence principle. In the uh, sermon, rather, preaching uh, preached that eulogized Dickens, the minister concluded that his greatest achievement was that the rich man was made to see and feel the presence of Lazarus at his gate. In other words, if you could really understand this parable, the idea was that we should not be Scrooges, but we should be good and be better people and live by these principles. And that was the extent of Scrooge's reformation. Be good. And that's what every religion, every philosophy, every psychology tells you at some point. They tell you that you should and must be good to one another, and they suggest how you ought to go about it. There's a rhyme that puts uh, the Bible aspect of this into perspective. I've used it before, but it's a good one. Do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better way the Spirit brings, he bids me fly and gives me wings. What that's saying is that without the indwelling spirit of God, we lack the power to be good or keep a program like the total abstinence principle. Sadly, if Scrooge were a real person, he'd die to find himself alongside the rich man in Hades. No amount of good works or self-improvement can save you. Was Dickens a Christian? Historians disagree. That's not up to us to figure out. He obviously had Christian influences that come through his writings. If he was a believer, however, he didn't feel the need to stress repentance and the cross. 
A Christmas carol doesn't point you to Jesus. Scrooge wasn't saved from sin, but from cynicism. I find it sad. I, I know, you know, we can't act like everybody should be evangelicals like us. Well, actually, we should. But anyway, uh, I don't want to pour anything onto Dickens. And obviously, he's a great writer and all that. But he didn't take the opportunity to, to talk about Jesus Christ, the reason for the season, all of that kind of stuff. He was content to leave it at, let's be good people. Let's be better. Let's better ourselves. Let's work at that. Scrooge needed Jesus. He needed a conversion. He needed to be transformed by God, not merely to reform himself. He needed to be born again by repenting of his sin and believing Jesus saved him by dying on the cross. Being a good person is not enough to get you into heaven. First of all, no one is a good person. There's only one who is perfectly good, and that is God himself. The Bible says that everyone else has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It says that the wages or what we have coming for sin is death. God took massive action to save us. While we were in our sinful state, Jesus died for the unrighteous. By his death on the cross, he exerts an influence that draws all men to himself. He is the savior of all men, the Bible says, but not all receive his salvation, only those who believe. Salvation is not based on our goodness, but on Jesus' goodness. We confess with our mouth that he's the Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We will be saved. It's a precious gift, salvation in Christ, and like all true gifts, it must be unearned. The message of the Bible is that what can never be good enough to get to heaven, we must recognize that we are sinners who fall short of God's glory. We must obey the command to repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in the Lord. Christ alone was a good man, good enough to earn heaven, and he gives his righteousness to those who believe in his name. So most of you obviously have had your wills freed by God's prevenient grace in order to receive God's indescribable gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. You're following the Lord. You're a Christian. You're born again. You should rejoice. Your conversion and transformation are the better ending to this story. You're the better ending to this story because you realize you weren't good and could never be good, but that God was giving you his righteousness so that you could be right with him the Holy Spirit could take up residence in you and you could go forward in his power doing things that quite honestly are supernatural and beyond our ability. No matter your condition or situation, you are doing street theater out in the world. Your life is a sermon. In the New Testament, you've heard many times you know, where Paul says that we are living letters, living epistles to be known and read of all men. And it's not a thing of, well, I don't want people to, you know, scrutinize my life. I don't want people to know this or that. You should rejoice. You're, you're performing street theater. People are looking at you and they're like they looked at Lazarus and they have to make a decision because they know you're a Christian. They either are going to learn more about Jesus Christ through you or through other sources, or they're going to ignore that. And one day they're going to uh, have ignored it for too long. And it's going to be too late because after death comes judgment. And so go out into the world and preach that sermon. If you have not received the Lord, obviously it's our prayer that this year's celebration of his birth would mark your new birth. Believe God and it will be accounted unto you for righteousness. He alone can forgive you of your sins and sin is the problem. It's not that you're, uh, you know, you sin every now and then, it's that you are a sinner. 
And you can never do good, not perfect good. You'll never get to heaven without Jesus. So contemplate him as that indescribable gift that God wants to give you this season. Amen.